Welcome back to the Most Notorious Gangsters in the World podcast, episode 4. I'm Corey Franchise, the host, and today's show, we're talking about a man who climbed the mob ladder and organized organized crime. He became an equal opportunity mob boss, but his murder for hiring made him one of the most deadliest. It was said by many just the look in his eyes was strange, haunting, and weird. This man thrives on his reputation as being the biggest racketeer and the most eligible bachelor in Manhattan, New York. He was almost killed by the mob and survived, and people were calling him Lucky, giving him the legendary name, Charles Lucky Luciano. Born in Lacaria Freebie, a poor Sicilian town on November 24, 1897. Where Luciano's father and many more from the town worked long hours at a sofa mill at the top of the hill. Hearing that the streets were paved in gold in America, in 1907, they sailed to America and settled in a flat in a Jewish neighborhood on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, up the street from relatives. But it was not what they thought. The crime in the city was bad, the living spaces were small and dirty. Charles was one of four kids that attended PS40, but rarely showed up to school. Then placed in a Brooklyn truant school. Then at 14, he was a dropout. His first job paid about $7 a week. He was a hat delivery boy. He wasn't making as much as his peers or the hoods in the street at the time. They robbed push carts that sold food and clothing. Also, they gambled and sold drugs. Then, the streets would soon become his classroom of crime, and he was a student of the game. He would use his hat delivery job to make deliveries, putting his stash inside of the hat box walking around. So he had nothing in his pocket, and when he wanted to make a delivery or a sale, he would just reach inside the hat box. By then, he was committed to a life of crime. Smoking opiate, petty crimes, and crazy sex life. By 18, the first time the law caught up with him and charged him with possession of heroin. He would have been sentenced to a year in jail, and his parents were so ashamed they never came to visit. After six months, he was released. It was like if he had used this time to further his criminal education. He started doing heavier gambling, carrying a gun, still peddling heroin, and joined his first gang, the Five Pointers. This was a well-connected gang. Their job was to harass voters, even at gunpoint if they had to, forcing them to support the New York corrupt political machine, Tammany Hall. It helped the gang, but it couldn't always protect them though. In 1929, Luciano was arrested by federal agents for dealing heroin, but made a decision to rat on some Jewish gangsters on the east side that had a trunk full of heroin. This was nothing personal against the Jewish gangsters, because in his childhood he grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, and he had worked with anyone he could to make money. Like the violent Bugsy Siegel and the intellectual Meyer Lansky, who quickly became Luciano's most loyal partner in crime for the next half a century. Bugsy Siegel would say they were not just brothers, they were lovers, but not in the sense of homosexuality, but they always are together and they had an initiative bond with each other, enough to finish each other's sentences. So Meyer Lansky was a real key to Luciano's success. Another part of his success was the time he was in New York around the 20s, the time of prohibition and bootlegging. Luciano and Meyer Lansky, they learned a racket from Arnold Rothstein, 
the man they said who fixed the 1919 World Series. What most don't know is that some of the big names that came later on organized crime, like Ben Siegel, Frank Costello, Lansky, Luciano, they all worked for him first originally. He would give them financial backing and some political protection. Similar to Al Capone in Chicago, Luciano had made his first million bootlegging. But unlike Al Capone, Luciano wasn't happy consolidating the organized crime in just one city. He had a darker plan. A board of directors, overseeing rackets across the country with himself as the chairman. By late 20s, Luciano was a big player in New York mob at age 30. It wouldn't be long until the boss Joe Maziera, a reigning Sicilian Don, took Luciano under his wing and let him be his right hand. He had power, connections, and most of all a Sicilian background. At the time, Joe the boss Maziera was going through a turf war with another boss, Salvador Manzano. Manzano tried to get Lucky to switch sides, but when Lucky declined, he was picked up by four gangsters on 50th Street in New York. He was beaten bloody, stabbed, and left for dead. His survival was Luck, again referring to his nickname, Lucky. The attack left him with a droopy eyelid and a scar across his chin, which did nothing good for his already harsh looks. But the back and forth attacks, Luciano realized they were pointless and bad for business. So he took it upon himself to resolve the problem. He took his boss out to have lunch at a nice Italian restaurant in Coney Island. And at some point during the lunch, Luciano excused himself to the restroom. And the assassins came in, killing Joe the boss, Mazzaria, dead. This meaning Lucky had sided with the boss's rival, Manzano, who later made him his right-hand man. But Luciano had no patience with his new boss and his out-of-date ways. There were too many codes of behavior, rules, and initiation, and he wasn't interested in any of that. Luciano had planned to kill the new boss. He hired a few of his Jewish friends, including Bugsy Siegel, to be the hitman. They cornered Manzano in his office near Grand Central, stabbing him numerous times as well as shooting him several times. So now, Taking out two of the leading dons in New York, Luciano was the most dominant single gangster in the biggest mob city. He wanted to Americanize the mafia though. He gathered the head of the major mob families in New York, Buffalo, and Chicago, made them board of directors to eliminate turf wars and get max profits. With the end of prohibition in 1933, the big money was prostitution, gambling, narcotics, and extortion. They created their own contract killer group and named it Murder, Inc. And Luciano was the chairman. So after sorting things out with the board of directors, now everybody was making more money and there were less killings. It was said that crime families were making more than the 10 largest industrial corporations in America put together. But Luciano had a skill that was very valuable to his success. He knew how to listen and get other people to listen. But when he was mad, he was like a sharp knife right at you. But when Luciano was relaxing, being a bachelor, he had a glamorous lifestyle. He went to the 21 restaurant, the store club, and the horse races. He always had a huge wad of cash on him and elegant clothing. Eventually, Lucky moved into the Wardorf Towers. Many were impressed, especially the women. Because maybe he wasn't all that handsome, 
but he made up for everything with his power, money, and charm. He had parties, women, and stayed on the social scene, but never kept a woman. He was too focused on his career as the biggest gangster. But the people he partied with, and the ones that came to see him, even won autographs, didn't mind that during business hours, he was a cold-blooded killer. But Lucky loved the press, and he loved being Lucky Luciano. Even though Maya Lansky would warn him, this is not a good idea for press. This is not the attention that we need. In 1935, one man would take away all the luxuries that he was used to. Thomas E. Dewey was a special prosecutor in Manhattan. He ran an anti-mob headquarters at the Woolworth Building. He wanted to remove influence of racketeering and politics. The first that they started investing is a man named Dolch Schultz, a founder of the commission. Word on the street is that Schultz was planning to kill Dewey, but Luciano and the commission, they knew that they would bring heat down on them. Sure enough, Luciano plans on the hit and gets him killed. Dewey stayed at it and turned his investigation on Lucky. And what he had against Luciano, it wasn't racketeering or murder, it was prostitution. Little David Patillo ran the prostitution racket, extorting money from pimps and prostitutes in exchange for protection. They also say they had a witness who saw Patillo meeting with Luciano regularly at the Waldorf. So with this information and the information that they got from the prostitutes that had been shaken down, Dewey had his case. In March 1936, they were ready to put Lucky on trial, but he fled to Hot Springs, Arkansas to the Arlington Hotel. April 1st, 1936, Dewey sent his men to get Luciano and extradited him back to New York. He stood trial and in less than 24 hours the verdict was guilty and he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years. His other associates, Maya Lansky skipping town to Florida and Havana to oversee gambling interests, Bugsy Siegel fled to Hollywood where he could start racketeering on the west coast. But despite Lucky's sentence, he was still the chairman. He would have visitors and they were talking codes and he would still run his organization. Patillo, who was inside with him, would prepare his meals and he had his clothes pressed. Lucky was very respected. In 1942, Naval Intelligence approached Luciano for help. A fire had destroyed a French luxury liner, Normandy, and it sank in the Hudson. German submarines were spotted off the coast of New York and rumors of sabotage near the docks that were ran by Lucky Luciano and the mob. Then the commander Charles Heffington had an idea to have the mob protect the waterfront. So they approached his best friend first, Meyer Lansky, who presented the plan to Luciano in prison. Lucky still felt some kind of way toward the law and declined, but Meyer Lansky talked him into it. He was then moved to a minimum security prison called Great Meadows, where he could meet all his underbosses and associates and talk freely. And the rest of the war, the docks were free from sabotage. In 1943, when American and British troops invaded Sicily, Luciano had spoken to all the mafia and told them they should be inviting, friendly, and help facilitate the landing. The American general captains were so grateful for the cooperation, they had appointed them mayors of cities and towns. When it was all said and done, 
the mob was left in a more powerful place than it has ever been. And Luciano was released after appealing his case. Now the same person who prosecuted him, Thomas Dewey, will be the governor at this time. And he will have to sign the papers to release him. But Luciano was not able to stay in America. He was deported back to Italy and monitored by Italian police and never to return to America. February 10, 1946, Luciano sailed out of a New York harbor. And before he left, a few of his mob friends gathered together and handed him a huge envelope with about 400000 in it before he departed. After returning home, he evaded authorities and established a new power base in his native land. In late February 1946, after spending almost 10 years in prison, Luciano was back in Italy for the first time since childhood. After getting off the boat, he was briefly questioned and released. Even if Luciano had to defy the terms of his deportation, he was desperate to resume the only career he knew, racketeering. After eight months, he fled to Cuba. April 1947, he called a summit meeting of all his associates, Maya Lansky, Frank Costello, even Frank Sinatra. The excuse for the meeting was to celebrate Frank Sinatra and listen to his songs, but behind the scenes, they discussed the heroin routes from Sicily to Cuba and from there to the United States. Then he had Cuban casinos to worry about and his friend Bugsy Siegel, who was careless with mild money and was losing millions, building the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Luciano made the decision to have Bugsy killed and to show that money was more important. So on June 20th, 1947, in the mansion of his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, Bugsy was murdered. After the meeting, Lucky wanted to stay in Cuba and run the heroin racket from there. Also, he got along with the corrupt government. But Harry Anslinger, on the Bureau of Narcotics, wanted Luciano out. He said that Luciano was going to use Havana as a pumping station to push heroin to the United States. So therefore, he was expelled from Cuba and taken back to Italy and held in prison for a few days for violating the terms. Then they sent him to Sicily and put him on permanent surveillance and told him to keep a low profile. He then opened a candy shop selling what Italians call confetti. They raided his shop, ruining all of his merchandise and then found one speck of heroin. But they had good reason to suspect Lucky. He had also staged a few fake auctions with dolls with heroin inside of them. The bidders were in on the scheme. He slowly but surely started an international racket with his friends in America. He found ways to manufacture heroin in central Italy and he found a pipeline to get it to New York, making millions and millions all over again. He was well known in Italy, just like he was in America. He dined at the finest places and stayed in the limelight. But his charisma caught the eye of Ajayo Masani. This was the love of his life. They were in love and they were happy. They moved into a lavish apartment together in Rome, but he didn't stay long. Since Luciano was deported, the flow of narcotics from Italy to US had risen and risen, and Lucky was the prime suspect. So the US and Italian authorities joined forces. In July 1949, an alleged associate of Luciano was arrested at the airport with over a half a million dollars in cocaine. Even though there was nothing linking him to it, 
he was still held in a Rome prison for two weeks and exiled again. At this time, the mob in America started to question his role as chairman. Now back in Naples for the next 13 years, power within the American mob is weaker to the point where some were threatening to kill him. Him and his wife Ajaya settled in a penthouse in Naples. He conducted transit mob business and was very much compensated, but he was bored and miserable. He wanted to go back to New York. The closest thing in Naples to New York was the California, where he can talk and chat with tourists and people from New York. The former head of Murder Inc. had become calm with age and later known for his generosity in helping people in Naples when they needed it. He had took a role of a legit businessman and opened a hospital supply store to keep the authorities off him and to cover up the money that he was making through his operation. But his life would take a turn when his girlfriend of nine years, Ajaya, died of cancer. Luciano's life started to unravel, and his mob associates felt that he was taking a little more off the top than he normally would. Around 1959, Lucky and the mob had a rude awakening when Fidel Castro took over from Batista in Cuba. He shut down the pipeline to the U.S. and closed all of the casinos. The mob lost millions. At this time, Luciano was looking for a new way. He pitched the idea of doing a movie of his life with a producer from Spain. He was sure that Dean Martin would play the part of him since they both had a common friend, Frank Sinatra. He also mentioned the idea back home to the mob about doing the movie. The mob telling him no and told him if he made the movie, it would bring heat down on him. And if he did make it, that they were going to kill him. So Lucky threatened to cut off their supply of heroin and continue with his proceeds to make the movie. He was tipped off that his life was in danger and a contract was on his head. So he secluded himself in his penthouse. But growing older with age, he started having chest pains. His blood pressure was high. He was soon hospitalized in 1961. January 26, 1962, he stopped at the California to put an order in for lunch. He said that he would return shortly. He had to go run some errands. At the time, he was going to greet the producer for his movie to go over the plans in Naples. After he greets the producer, they walk out to the parking lot. Shortly after, all of a sudden, he was stricken by a heart attack and died instantly at 64 years old. The day of his funeral, Many came out to pay their respects. Mourners lined the street, and his wish to come back to America was granted. His body was flown back to New York and buried in a Catholic cemetery in Queens. It is thought that he was poisoned by the mob, or the mob had something to do with his death. But the truth is, he died of a heart attack. Charles Lucky Luciano left us a legacy that's still with us today. Organized crime. And he was a genius at this how he brought all the families and mobsters together and formed a structured organization. This was brilliant. Thanks again for tuning in to the world's most notorious podcast, Lucky Luciano and the Commission Edition. I'm your host, Corey Franchise. Appreciate y'all tuning in again. Within the next week, I'll be interviewing the author of four books on mob ties, Italians, Albanians, and Greeks. I'm looking forward to it. His name is Nick Christopher. Don't forget to subscribe, y'all. Remember, content comes out two times a week. Peace.
<laughs> Keep the change, you filthy animal.